Hello, I'm Pete Redden, and this is another edition of The Way I Taught It, Next Level Aviation Knowledge in Microbursts. In today's episode, we'll be discussing basic aircraft performance for VFR flying. Our references will be Chapter 11 of the PHAC, Chapter 5 of your Airplane Flying Manual, or your POH, and numerous references throughout the Airplane Flying Handbook. We're going to talk about takeoff, climb, cruise, descent, and landing performance. All of this should take place in your pre-flight performance preparation. So I'm not saying this is a substitute for all of your pre-flight planning, which includes your flight logs and determining your headings and courses that you're going to fly. But this is what you should be doing in addition to that if you're not already doing it. And if you are doing it, how to use that calculated performance better to determine how your flight is going to occur, what performance to expect, how to apply that performance number prior to ever leaving the ground. So let's talk about takeoff. When we talk about takeoff, there's ground roll, takeoff over a 50-foot obstacle, and then most recently I've seen this 50-70 rule becoming very popular, but unfortunately it's being manipulated in an incorrect way, incorrect numbers are being used to determine the 50-70 rule. Let's talk about takeoff ground roll. Your takeoff ground roll is going to be from the time that you release your brakes to the time that you rotate the aircraft and leave the ground. That is your takeoff ground roll. Your takeoff over a 50-foot obstacle is the time from you release your brakes to include leaving the ground, so that's your ground roll number, plus the time it takes to get to 50 feet above the airport surface. If you want to determine, can I land back on the runway if I have an engine failure, well, you can take your takeoff height over a 50-foot obstacle distance and then take your landing over a 50-foot obstacle distance and add those together. So you can take your takeoff over a 50-foot obstacle and your land over a 50-foot obstacle. You add those together, and that's how much runway you're going to need to take off, climb to 50 feet, lose your engine, pitch the nose down, land back on the runway, and come to a complete stop. That would be your uh, technically your abort distance. You could do your abort ground roll if you use your ground your takeoff ground roll to the rotate, and then you abort without leaving the ground. Then you can use your landing ground roll, and that'll determine your abort distance if you don't leave the ground. So you can see your your takeoff ground roll and your takeoff over a 50 foot obstacle distances are usable in other ways than just calculating them for the test. Let's talk about the 50-70 rule. This says, it's not really a rule, it's a rule of thumb, but this says if all other variables are normal or standard, you will be at 50% of your ground roll, you'll be at 70% of your rotate speed. So let's just say rotate for easy math. Rotate is 100 knots, and we'll say 1,000 feet is our takeoff ground roll. At 500 feet into our ground roll, we should be at 70 knots. Again, it's 50% of your ground roll, not 50% of your runway available, which is what I've seen this morph into. So be very careful because 50% of your runway, if you're flying on 152, you have a 10,000 foot runway and you're waiting to be at 70% of your rotate speed 
by 5,000 feet down the runway, well, that's a chin scratcher because your engine's probably not working correctly if you're doing it that way. So it should be 50% of your ground roll. That's what the FAA wants. They have a, a handout from the FAST team that talks about uh, flying precision in the pattern. And if you go search FAA precision in the pattern, you can pull that up and you can see that rule of thumb there for you. If you're not at 70% of VR, by the time you get to 50% of your ground roll distance, it's time to abort. Climb. First off, when it comes to pre-flight climb performance planning, Look for the real obstacles. Don't play pretend. We've all gotten ourselves into this scenario where am I clear of the 50-foot obstacle because we're on a test or we're training and we all simulate this pretend 50-foot obstacle. Well, I'm here to tell you that sometimes there's no obstacle and sometimes there's obstacles higher than 50 feet, especially if you're near an urban area that has radio towers or television towers or microwave towers or cell phone towers or buildings, parking garages, those obstacles may not be 50 feet. Our POHs, our AFMs use 50 feet as kind of a generic number. And I really don't know where that came from, but we're gonna talk about that a little bit here as we go along. So don't play pretend, look for real obstacles. If there's no obstacles, just do the normal takeoff. If there are obstacles, well, maybe you have to do a short field takeoff, or maybe you have to do a normal takeoff, but climb out at VX for an extended period of time prior to clearing the obstacle and then transition to VY. Determine as the PIC if there are actual obstacles. Determine if you are actually clear, meaning when you take off and you commit to taking off and you rotate and you're climbing out at VX because there is an obstacle out there you're concerned about, maintain VX, look outside the aircraft for the obstacle. You should be able to see it and go, okay, yeah, now I'm clear of it, so now I can pitch to VY. How do you find obstacles? in the VFR environment. Well, see and avoid, right? See and avoid, see and avoid, see and avoid. I don't have to do any calculations. Well, true, but not necessarily professional. True, but not necessarily uh, the type of pilot that I'm trying to be. First off, if you're flying VFR and you're at the airport, walk outside on the ramp. Look at the runway that you're planning on taking off. Look at the departure end. Look beyond the departure end and go, what's out there? Are there towers? Are there trees? Is there a fence line? Are there buildings? Is there a parking garage? What's out there? And just do some common sense figuring. Hey, there is, a, there is a tower out there that I can see off the end of the runway. Maybe it's on my sectional chart and I can figure out how tall that tower is. Maybe look at the FBO or the terminal wall that you're doing your flight planning in. Maybe look on the walls of the flight planning room at the, at the airport that you're doing your flight planning at. Sometimes they'll put a little thing up there that says, here are our obstacles that you have to consider when departing. Or maybe they have noise abatement procedures, which you can use as departure procedures that you have to meet in avoiding the obstacles. There's probably a reason why those noise abatement procedures go the direction they go, because they're probably going away from obstacles. Use the sectional chart, maybe to find the highest tower along your planned departure corridor. If you're going to climb a 6,500 feet and it's going to take you whatever 10 miles to get there, look at the sectional chart, draw a line off the departure end of the runway and go, if I climb straight ahead for 10 miles, where's, where's the nearest obstacle? Where's the nearest tower to that? 
Or if I'm going to just fly the traffic pattern, okay, well, I'm going to fly maybe a mile uh, upwind, a mile on the crosswind, and then the next eight miles in the opposite direction that I took off. So how I plot that on my sectional chart, where are the highest obstacles and what are their heights? If you want to, even though you may just be a VFR private pilot, you can look at takeoff minimums, departure procedures, and diverse vector area information in the IFR supplements that you should have available to you at the FBO or in the pilot lounge or the pilot planning area, or even if you go online to something like Sky Vector, you, you can pull those things up and look at them and they'll tell you, hey, there's a 150 foot tree, 40 feet left of center line, uh, one mile from the end of the runway. And then you have enough numbers there to do the math. We'll get into the math here in a little bit uh, as we talk through the climb portion. Let's talk VX versus VY. I understand that some aircraft today that are coming out publish one climb speed VY. They publish that VY airspeed with flaps and without flaps. If this is your aircraft, use the VY speed with flaps as your VX speed and your VY speed without flaps as your actual VY. This will help you understand how to uh, climb, get better climb performance in different scenarios. So VX versus VY, best angle versus best rate. Personally, when I take off, I will climb out at VX until I am one clear of all obstacles. Then I will transition to VY until I am at traffic pattern altitude or above. And then I will transition to cruise climb. The reason I do this is because when you get into IFR departure procedures, VX, VY, and cruise climb will give you three different climb performance numbers. And you have to make sure that when you're doing your calculations for IFR departures, that you use the proper climb speed that will give you the proper climb gradient to outclimb those obstacles that you can't see because you're in a cloud. Let's talk about proper pitch attitudes. Look outside if you're a VFR pilot. Have your instructor teach you what the pitch picture looks like outside the airplane, the cowling of the top of the cowling of the airplane or the spinner of the airplane in relationship to the horizon for proper VX and VY climbs. Don't use your instruments because we need to be looking outside to establish a VX, VY climb so that we can also be looking for that real obstacle, not the pretend one, the real obstacle that we're trying to outclimb. Once you've looked outside, once you have everything stabilized, once you have everything trimmed, then look inside to ensure that you are getting the performance that you want. Remember, with the exception of the heading indicator, the attitude indicator, the airspeed indicator, most other instruments in the aircraft are kind of lag instruments. They're not really perfect instruments. The altimeter, sensitive altimeter might be there, but when we talk about setting a pitch, setting a power, stabilizing it, trimming it off, and then looking at our performance. If you don't have the performance you want, it might be turn, time to turn around the airplane and land. That's perfectly fine. VFR is see and avoid, and we talked about that, but how do we quantify? Are we going to clear the obstacle? Are we gonna clear the ridge? Are we going to outclimb the box canyon that we're taking off into uh, on a 110 degree day? How do we know? So let's look at a basic obstacle problem. 
Let's say we have a tower that's 1,200 feet above ground level, and that tower is 3.1 nautical miles from the departure end of the runway, and you used your sectional chart to plot that. We're going to use a no wind ground speed because we know that a headwind will always help us and increase our performance. So if we use a no wind ground speed, we know that we're being conservative because we'll get less performance in our calculations than we will in the performance in real life when we actually take off into that 5, 10, 15 knot headwind. So we take our no wind ground speed and we'll make that equal to our VY climb speed of 75 knots, hypothetically. What climb rate do we need to clear that obstacle that's 1,200 feet above ground level at 3.1 nautical miles from the airfield? Well, first we have to divide 75 knots indicated airspeed or ground speed by 60. This gives us 1.25 nautical miles per minute. This is our forward airspeed across the ground in nautical miles per minute. Then we take the 3.1 nautical miles and divide that by 1.25 nautical miles per minute. And this gives us 2.48 minutes to get there. So 2.48 minutes, it's about two and a half minutes. So two minutes and 30 seconds to get to the tower, climbing out at 75 knots VY. Then we have to divide the obstacle height above the ground and if you look at your sectional chart, that's the smaller number in parentheses next to the obstacle. We have to divide that by 2.48, which renders a climb rate to clear that obstacle of 484 feet per minute. So I know before I ever leave the ground, when I rotate and I pitch and I establish my VY climb and I have it all trimmed out, max power, proper pitch attitude, I'm looking outside, I can see that obstacle at 1,200 feet AGL, three miles from the field. When I look inside my airplane and I look at the VSI, it has to read 484 feet per minute or greater, or I'm not going to outclimb the obstacle, which means I have to turn away from it, see and avoid. But if I'm climbing at five or six or 700 feet per minute, I know I'll outclimb it. So now I just have to maintain my 2,000 feet from, 1,000 feet above, all that good stuff for uh, maintaining spacing from obstacles but I know it will not reach up and grab me and kill me because I will outclimb the obstacle. I don't have to worry about that obstacle anymore. Cruise performance. This is where I see a ton of poor instructional techniques displayed on exams. First off, on the ground, determine your power setting, whether that's RPM or RPM and manifold pressure, or percent of load for those of you who fly diesel or turboprops. First, determine your power setting. We're just going to use basic RPM for this scenario. The same chart that you determine your RPM should also give you fuel flow. It should give you true airspeed and possibly indicated airspeed. So if it doesn't give you indicated airspeed, convert true airspeed to indicated if the chart doesn't already give it to you. Don't use, this is what my instructor told me to use for the numbers. Don't do that as a private pilot, as a pilot period. You must understand and comprehend and correlate where the numbers come from out of the POH, out of the AFM, not a handout that somebody gave you, not a rule of thumb somebody gave you. You actually have to be able to use your manufacturer's performance tables during the exam and demonstrate how to use them. So don't use the, this is what my instructor told me, numbers. Use the actual numbers. So let's say at 2,500 RPM, at 6,500 feet, we're going to have a true airspeed of 112 knots. 
we're going to have an indicated airspeed of 100 knots, and our fuel flow is going to be 7.5 gallons per hour. When you approach 6,500 feet, don't pull the power to level off because you're climbing at 76, and we need to accelerate to 100. So when we get to 6,500 feet, we push the nose over, we push the pitch over to level flight attitude, and we let the airspeed build at max power until you hit your, your expected indicated airspeed of 100 knots, or if you have a true airspeed readout, your true airspeed of 112. Once you hit those numbers, then we bring the power back to 2,500 RPM. Then we trim because we've been using our large muscles in our arm to control the pitch so we don't deviate from 6,500 feet. So then we trim out all the control pressures, and now we're level at 6,500 feet at our true airspeed, at our indicated airspeed. And if you have a fuel flow indicator, lean the mixture to get the 7.5 gallons per hour on the fuel flow indicator. Now you have set up everything. You should be stabilized at 6,500 feet, flying along to your destination. Here's where I see things go awry besides power pull to level off. When we shouldn't pull the power to level off, we should just adjust the pitch to level off. What I see is people will use power to adjust altitude at cruise, and that's not what we want. We want a constant 2,500 RPM to give us a constant true airspeed, a constant indicated airspeed, and a constant fuel flow. If we are deviating from altitude at cruise, that is a pitch issue if our RPM is at 2,500 RPM or near 2,500 RPM. That's a pitch issue. That's more than likely a pitch trim issue. So we must use the yoke to get ourselves back to 6,500 feet and then trim the aircraft again. Remember, we're flying the airplane with the yoke back to 6,500 feet. We're holding it at 6,500 feet with the yoke and our big muscles of our arm. And once everything stabilizes back to 2,500 RPM, 6,500 feet, 100 notch indicated airspeed, 112 knots true, then we will trim off the control pressure so that the airplane stays there. Okay, so now descent. Again, this is where I see a lot of poor instructional text techniques displayed on exams. First, we're gonna make a couple assumptions. I'm assuming that we are waiting to be within glide distance of the destination airport prior to descending. I see so many people descend 10 miles out from the airfield and you can't see the airfield 10 miles away at traffic pattern altitude, plus you're way outside glide distance. Single engine airplane, I'm a big, proponent of staying within glide distance or getting to within glide distance before starting your descent. Next, I'm planning to descend at a at or faster than cruise speed. So if I've been cruising at 100 knots indicated, I am going to descend at 100 knots indicated or faster. And you can plan this, you can prep for this, and when you're on your exam or when you're with your passengers, you can tell them, hey, now that we're in a descent, we're going to go a little faster. One, it's a little bit more efficient. Two, it gets us there a little quicker and it helps you and you can keep the power up a little longer to prevent overcooling of your engine if you're concerned about that. Finally, I'm going to keep my power in until I need to reduce the power to control my airspeed, either to maintain my airspeed or to slow my airspeed. So if I'm cruising at 100 and it's a smooth day and I'm not too concerned about going into the yellow arc, I'm gonna push my nose over, I'm gonna to accelerate to whatever my planned airspeed is that might go into the yellow arc. I'm gonna trim the airplane up for that airspeed and that pitch attitude. And then I'm going to use the power and adjust the power to maintain that airspeed 
in that descent that I pre-planned in my pre-flight planning. Now, I know some of you are saying, oh, Pete, just pull the power and the airplane is trimmed for 100 knots and eventually and it'll descend at 100 knots. That is theoretically true, but the airplane will have to slow down below 100 knots before the nose will drop. And then once the nose drops, it now has to accelerate to 100 knots, which means it's going to build up momentum, which means it's going to accelerate through 100 knots. And you're going to get into this pilot-induced oscillation or trim-induced oscillation. So before you pull the power, push that nose down, then pull the power and establish the proper pitch attitude. If I pitch for airspeed during the descent to maintain a specific airspeed, I'm going to inadvertently change my rate of descent. So we have to make sure that we're picking pitch attitudes, airspeeds, power settings in combination that give us the airspeed and descent rate that we're looking for. How do I know what my descent rate is? Well, if we're going to descend from 6,500 feet to traffic pattern altitude, I need to know the elevation of my airport. If the elevation of my airport is 1,500 feet, I know traffic pattern altitude is 2,500 feet, so I need to lose 4,000 feet. Now, if my best glide gives me 1.5 nautical miles for every 1,000 feet I descend, I'm going to descend no, no later than, if I take 4,000 feet divided by 1,000, that equals four, four times 1.5 nautical miles equals six nautical miles from the airfield. So I will descend no later than six nautical miles because that puts me within glide distance. Now I'm gonna descend at that 100 knots indicated. So 100 divided by 60 is 1.67 nautical miles per minute. So I'll cover that distance of six nautical miles at 1.67 nautical miles per minute, which equals three plus 36 seconds, three minutes, 36 seconds. That requires a descent rate, 1,100 feet per minute. So I need to pitch and trim and power for 1,100 feet per minute or set up the autopilot for 1,100 feet per minute. And that way in that descent, if at any point my engine fails, I pitch for best glide and I will still be able to glide to the airport, no winds situation. To level off at traffic pattern altitude, just add power. Based on your performance charts, you're at a new cruise altitude so just find the RPM that'll give you the same cruise airspeed, but just at a lower altitude and set that power and you should just level off at traffic pattern altitude and you shouldn't even have to adjust the trim or if you do adjust the trim, it won't be that much. Okay, on to landing data. It's not just completed to pass a test. We need to use the data we create to our advantage. Two distances we're gonna compute, landing over a 50-foot obstacle, and ground roll, which is the distance from touchdown to our full stop on the runway. How long is it going to take us to stop the airplane? First, there's no simulated braking on an exam or in real life. So if you're using simulated braking in your training, stop doing that, or at least if you do it in the beginning of your training, as you approach your check ride, start using real braking, maybe the last two or three flights that you do so you understand how the brake system works in your aircraft. There is no simulated braking on an exam. The short field landing is the only landing that requires braking and you must brake within the guidance of the manufacturer. So you must use the brakes on your exam. Second, you should be able to meet the calculated distances that you calculate from your POH or your AFM during the short field landing. The short field landing is based on those calculated distances. So 
If you say you can land and stop the airplane in a thousand feet, then you need to land and stop the airplane in a thousand feet. Again, the short field landing is the only landing that requires braking in the ACS. In a no-wind situation, we should be able to use the landing over a 50-foot obstacle and the ground roll distance to determine our power pull towards idle during the landing sequence. Here's how. Subtract the ground roll distance from the landing over a 50-foot obstacle distance. This gives you what I call air distance, the distance you're going to travel from 50 feet above the ground to your touchdown point. In most general aviation airplane single-engine land aircraft, the throttle is pulled toward idle, not to idle, but toward idle at 50 feet above the ground. This allows the airspeed to slow at a controlled rate while you're holding your aim point, leveraging ground effect to maintain efficient lift while increasing your AOA and in turn increasing your pitch to the proper nose up position for touchdown on the main wheels. Yes, if you're doing it right, the stall horn is going to activate intermittently just prior to touchdown. If it doesn't, you're probably doing it wrong. Well, what if I fly brand X of high performance aircraft? Always follow the manufacturer's recommendations. Bottom line, the main wheels must touch prior to the nose wheel at as slow an airspeed as possible. If not, you're doing it wrong. Don't land on all three wheels at the same time. Certainly don't land on the nose wheel. Again, I'm Pete Redden, and this was The Way I Taught It. Thanks for listening.